Welcome to Novel Romantics, a podcast about contemporary American fiction. I'm the host of Novel Romantics, Douglas Cowie. I'm a writer and teacher. And today we will be discussing The Chosen and the Beautiful by Ni Vo. My guest today is Michael Coyle, back for the second time, in fact. Professor of English at Colgate University, Michael Coyle is founding president of the Modernist Studies Association and has served as president of the International T.S. Eliot Society and on the boards of other author societies. His research is centered on modernist literature and on the contributions of African-American literature and of jazz to the modernist moment. He has been a jazz DJ for pretty much his entire life. Welcome back, Michael. So great to be here. This is fun. (laughs) And the the book we're going to talk about today is almost perfect for the title of your your series. Oh, yeah. Good point. I hadn't thought of it that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, So just to remind listeners, today we are going to discuss The Chosen and the Beautiful by Nevo. It's the second of two episodes in which Michael and I discuss recent novels that engage with and reinterpret F. Scott Fitzgerald's 1925 novel, The Great Gatsby. So if you haven't listened to the first episode, you know, stop listening right now and go back and listen to that and then come back for another hour of us talking about Gatsby and contemporary versions of it. Now, having said that, this is a very different reinterpretation of Gatsby than than Stephanie Powell Watts's uh, No One Is Coming to Save Us, which we discussed last time. And I guess that's maybe a good place to start our discussion today. That novel takes the framework of Gatsby and reinvents all of it into a contemporaneous uh, or contemporary to now setting uh, with different characters, but who are kind of modeled on different characters from Gatsby. We argued quite a bit last time about who we think Nick is, um, and so on and so forth. Um, whereas this novel is set in the same moment as The Great Gatsby itself. It takes the same characters, I'm going to say on their own terms, but actually we'll start talking about how the terms get changed by this novel. But it takes the same story. There's no, like, it's almost impossible to have spoilers today because it's really the same storyline, the same characters, but we have a different narrator we have lots of different aspects. And and so I wonder whether we might start thinking about like, just what is, I suppose, what's the point of, of reinterpreting Gatsby in general? And what are the, what matters about those differences in approach that we get with this novel or, or about the specific approach that, that Nevo has taken with The Chosen and the Beautiful? There's about 10 questions in there, I think. Yeah, but they're, they're kind of the perfect questions for this book. It, you know, it might be worth observing why suddenly there are all of these reimaginings and re-enterings of the, the Gatsby world. It's because, wait for it, big mystery, Gatsby's just gone out of copyright. Yeah, yeah I was going to say the cynical <laughs> answer is it's out of copyright and you're free to do so. <laughs> right, so there are, there are whole speeches in Niveau's novel that they may not be verbatim word for word, but they're very close. And, and sometimes they are, uh, at least on the level of the individual sentence, verbatim. Yeah, so what's the, the point of this where you know how it's going to end? Well, everything is in the, the telling. And probably the major difference here is that Niveau's novel is not realist fiction, right? It's fabulous fiction. Do you want to just, uh, do you, do you want to just give our listeners a little definition of what you mean by fabulous fiction? Yeah, well, probably best if it's not my definition. 
Let me <laughs> turn to a writer whom you may know, Brenda Peinado. Uh, she's an, an American writer of uh, you know Latinx descent, and she's had a lot to say in various interviews, which are easily discoverable online. Um, she did one interview with Electric, Lit- Electric Literature in, out of Brooklyn, and she she um, calls her piece. Well, the title is actually a question. Is fabulism the new sincerity, she asks. And she talks about fabulism, that is, you know, introducing all these kinds of magical elements, this sort of supernatural dimension, even where, as I often thought, Doug, reading Niveau, like, you know, this novel could, could very well work without any of it. So why is it there? Basically, Brenda Peinado says, Fabulism represents truth-telling in a world that wouldn't otherwise believe you. And she observes that most of the writers who are very active in this genre are women or writers of color, but especially women of color. And uh, there's a lot that's been said about how this is different from that, that incredibly rich genre of magical realism that came out of Central and South America what, 40, 50 years ago now. Yeah, this this question of is it the new sincerity is an interesting one to me for a bunch of different reasons, some of which I probably don't want to talk about on a recording because uh, I'll end up saying th- mean things about, not about this writer, um, but about about the writers that that, that since there might be an implication about the lack of sincerity elsewhere that it might get me into trouble, but it it's not giving anything away that the premise of this is that some of the characters in Gatsby are actually kind of supernatural beings or demons. And it's interesting that you said to me that, that, you know, the story that Nevo is telling almost doesn't need that. Um, and I think there's, I think there's a case to, you could make a case. It would be kind of stupid to make it because it's not the novel she's written, but, um, but they could make the case like, well, actually she could have told this story without those elements and it would still have been a really great novel. Uh, a really interesting novel. So then what is the point of that layer? But then I've got like, I've got answers to that as well. I, uh, Cause I found it really interesting that she it's that she's pulled this line through it and done it in a really subtle and interesting way. It's not that like doom and destruction is being wreaked down on the world in big, exciting scenes. Like it's like a action film or something like that. On the other hand, there is a sense that her interest in, these supernatural powers and the kind of magic that she's invested this world with is something that's destructive and um, and is in fact bringing destruction down certainly on the worlds of the the people of this novel but but maybe not exclusively destructive there's something there's something kind of ambivalent about what's happening here and i i mean i've got a bunch of thoughts which we can maybe um unpack as we go well, one last mm-hmm. thing from Brenda Pinato, and that is she talks about fabulism as essentially a defamiliarizing device, right? The phrase that she uses is short-circuiting readers' expectations. And we, we can see immediately, right, how that would be useful if you're entering the world of a novel as over-familiar as Gatsby. Like, how do you get people to see this for the first time? I think it's it's worth noting, too, that there's nothing in this novel that happens because of this supernatural development. And that's what I was afraid of as I was reading. It's like, oh, she's going to 
you know, create some sort of deus ex machina that that's why Gatsby does what he does. Instead, the way that I read it, and I'll, I'm really eager to hear what you think, it's, it's simply a, a way of kind of foregrounding the spiritual price that's paid by the people in this this moneyed world. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, I was going to say it's kind of what's great about it is that it's part of the fabric of the novel, and it's part of the fabric of the novel right from the beginning. And I think you're absolutely right. It's to me, it's not just that it's a, a way of in part dramatizing and exploring the spiritual price that people pay, but also the um, some of the more the political interests that this novel has as well which are are quite lightly handled but definitely there and and never not there all the way through and at times they come to the fore especially at the end of the novel there's there's a a kind of racial politics that comes into the novel and this is all a way of handling that in certain ways that i um find interesting and part of what i think is so interesting is that she handles it with such a light touch but to such a enlargening effect on the story that she's telling which i suppose brings me back to my initial question of like what's the point of retelling gatsby and and then i guess i guess we covered that with the previous novel and it was about trans transporting the basics of a story to a contemporary environment whereas here telling the story in its own environment um, part of the point is to enlarge it in some way or bring a different perspective on it in some way and there's two ways in which this novel does that and one and we've just been discussing this this fabulous mode of writing and the other is the choice of narrator so this novel is narrated by the the golf pro jordan baker although she plays zero golf in the novel Uh, (laughs) (laughs) well we we hear that that she's she i think there are two maybe three tournaments That we hear her going to when she loses them all. Yeah, yeah. She's not focusing on golf in the slightest. <laughs> yeah, when I first heard of this novel, I heard, okay, so here's a re-entering of the world of, of Gatsby, told from the point of view of Jordan Baker, whom we all, as we read the original novel, thought, oh, this is a, a woman who, who loves other women, mm-hmm. right? This will be interesting. And everybody who reads Gatsby probably thinks, oh, yeah, Nick's obviously in, in love with Gatsby. Mm-hmm. And that's true here, too. But but basically, the people in this world are, and it's unremarkable, right? Everyone just takes it as normal. They're all polyamorous. Yeah. Uh, Nick loves Gatsby, but he also loves Jordan, which is something that I never thought in the original novel. And, you know, there's, this, there's at least one, like, really erotic scene between uh, Jordan and Nick that didn't see that coming. So... What do we get from retelling this story from the point of view of the, the minor characters? Nick is a non-presence in The Great Gatsby, right? He's the, the narrator who somehow, he's, he's kind of a, a flaneur-like figure, kind of a Tiresias-like figure. He sees everything but does nothing, which is why the films of the many films of the great Gatsby have always had such trouble. What do you do with Nick? Cause he doesn't really do anything. Yeah. There's a, there's a great scene, uh, maybe more than one. In fact, it's been a long time since I've seen it in the, um, the one with, uh, Robert Redford and, uh, is it and, Mia Mia Farrow. Farrow. and Sam Waterston is, is, um, is Nick. And there's a scene where it's like just a close up of his face kind of getting sweatier and sweatier. He's basically really sweaty all the way through the film. Look, he's acting. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but she plays with that, with the kind of evasiveness of Nick in this novel in really interesting ways. 
partly in the things that Jordan says about him, there's a, there's various comments through the novel about how Nick is one that he's he's good at watching and he's he kind of he vanishes she she kind of effaces him or remarks upon the fact that he's vanished from the story by remarking on her own surprise that he's suddenly there and she's forgotten he was there or hadn't noticed that he'd arrived she also talks at one point about the idea that nick is good at telling other people's stories Yes. Um, and then there's another aspect of Nick that I think I want to leave to readers, listeners, surprise about in, in terms of how she constructs him as a, f- a fabulous figure, um, which only gets revealed in the final pages of the of the novel, though you can see it coming in certain ways. Yes. Um, that also plays into that. And so she's there's a there's an interesting commentary on that on the original Nick going on in this retelling of the story even though we don't get him as a we get him as more of a character because he's not a narrator and then you have Jordan taking the role his role from the original but she makes herself into a character in a way that that Fitzgerald doesn't make Nick into a character yes and uh, again without without getting too lost talking about Fitzgerald's original novel we know from the second page that Nick is an unreliable narrator. He doesn't tell the truth about himself because he can't. He's he's unable to tell the truth about himself. And so, like, you know, at the end of, of chapter two, a moment in the book that when I, I read it for a high school class, we just breezed right through and didn't notice, right? After the that terrible scene in the hotel room where where Tom breaks Myrtle's nose. Nick quietly leaves with this strange guy who's never seen before. The chapter ends with, you know, basically with them and they, they've been in bed mm-hmm. together, right? And then it, it's just dropped and not mentioned again. But Jordan in Niveau's novel is a completely different kind of character. As you were just suggesting, she's very honest. She sees through the, the pretenses of the people around her, but she's constantly testing herself, constantly thinking about herself and what she wants. And maybe the most, one of the most interesting threads of the novel has to do with Jordan's uh, Vietnamese identity. So we're told that she's from Tonkin. And, you know, I, I know that there's the Gulf of, of Tonkin, or at least that's what it used to be called. I actually got out a map. <laughs> Where is it? Well, it just turns out it's the old name it's the, it's a really old name for Vietnam, and I think maybe I'm not sure about this. It was uh, an old name for Hanoi. Yeah, I'm not 100 percent sure myself. I did do some some research of my own, and it, it's like a pre it's a pre French colonial, and I think even I think quite a long time before that even designation for this area that that became like I think even it kind of predates nation states as we think of them today. Yeah, yeah. It's probably it's an old, you know, medieval name for, for that part of the world. So in the early pages of the novel, we understand that Jordan was from Tonkin, but it's never entirely clear. At, at first, we're led to believe, because this is the story that she was handed down by the, the bakers, mm-hmm. she was rescued. But it, 
in the final pages of the novel, it seems like maybe she was kidnapped. Yeah, she, yeah. It's and it, it's really I really like the. There's a lot of things I really like about this novel, and that's one of them. And and I think there's a lot of other places and a lot of other, well, aspects of the novel where where Nevo plays with that ambiguity in a really nice, careful, sympathetic. When I say sympathetic, I mean sympathetic to the reader way that she sets up this story that as you've just described here's jordan's backstory and then she undermines that backstory later but it's being undermined for the character herself as well as for the reader so it's not like pulling a fast one on the reader where it's like oh actually this i lied earlier and now it's this and it's it's not like a it's not a cheap trick it's not it's not an unreliable narrator as you were saying earlier it's it's a it's an ambiguity that gets introduced in a way that that I've used the word fabric already, but that feels like part of the fabric of the story in a way that's that's unresolved but interesting. You know, it's it does it implies that she was kidnapped, but she almost you watch or you read Jordan not quite getting to grips with that herself at that moment in the novel. I like that way of putting it. Not quite. Not quite, but she she struggles yeah, with it. Yeah. And she, you know, she's always smart about her identity in this American context. She understands that people treat her as an exotic. In the early pages of the novel, she talks about how all the other, you know, white debutantes of Louisville are, are being married off. But of course, even though everybody wants her at their parties because she's exotic and she's sort of interesting, but no one's going to seriously consider her as a marriage partner, right? Yeah, and they're only going to invite her to the parties, not to the like, not to the rehearsal dinner for the wedding, and and not to the things that matter. We want you there, but we want you there at arm's length or... Yes, or rather she's the ornament on the yeah. arm, right? Yeah. And then in the, in the later pages of the novel, she comes to understand that as long as it's just her, you know, she's interesting or charming or exotic or whatever. But when she's with somebody else from Vietnam, then all of a sudden she's a threat. It's a, it's a great line. That, and it's it's a, one of the really interesting moments of the novel for me and where where lots of different things that have been woven together here all get expressed in a really good way. So there's, there's the thing we've just been talking about, about Jordan's um, background and her backstory and how she operates in high society Louisville and then how she operates on the East Coast in, in New York and in the Hamptons and all that, or West Egg and all that. And because she's always remarking on that as well. She's always drawing or, or other characters are drawing comparisons between people's Middle Western behaviors and, the, and that kind of thing. And the kind of that East Coast snobbery, which which is something I, I, I kind of like as someone from the Midwest myself. Um, yeah. Uh, but then there's this introduction of this um, thing called the Manchester Act, which is a anti-foreigner, anti-immigrant piece of another one of the exclusionary acts yeah. right? i think it's made it up, is made up I, I tried to find it and to make sure but it's yeah it's an ex- yeah. it's an exclusionary piece of legislation that's being threatened and is is inevitably going to come to pass in the novel and then it it does towards right at the end of the novel come to pass and she's reflecting on that and this is what she this is exactly the moment you were just talking about she's she's met this um traveling troupe of performers at one of gatsby's parties she's been visiting them in Chinatown. And so this, she's with this guy called Kai. So she, he's, he's driven her home from Chinatown back to park Avenue, where she lives with a, a rich aunt of the, of the Baker family. 
And she says, the morning tra foot traffic split around us, glaring, and I wondered if it had as much to do for what we looked like as it did for the fact that we were in their way. I was more vulnerable with him, I realized. Alone, I was a charming oddity. With him, I became a foreign conspiracy. Was that why I never spent much time in Chinatown? Which is a, a, a really interesting reflection in its own right, and also uh, is a change in her thinking from earlier in the novel when she first goes to Chinatown and she has a slightly different you know, she, she reflects on the fact that she doesn't ever go there and she, but she doesn't really quite articulate why and so here's a, another thing planted earlier in the novel just coming to to a fruition in a, in a really natural and a really nice and, and straightforward kind of way and there's a lot of little moments like that in this novel that I just think are, are really nicely constructed and, and and nicely articulated as well, which is not quite the same thing. Yes, that's that's one of Nebo's strengths as a writer. I I think she she can just hit you with a, a short passage like that. Yeah, that suddenly encapsulates so much, and you begin to 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 see the importance of her reimagining Jordan Baker as somebody of you know East Asian descent, or particularly of uh, Vietnamese descent. Yeah. It, it also works in how she uses the characterizations of Gatsby and Gatsby as this kind of she at one point she calls him an emissary of hell <laughs> yeah. um, which probably gives a slightly false impression of how the novel works because it's not like he's running around you know biting people's heads off but um not literally but <laughs> but she there's all these little moments i I charted through the novel of of where she characterizes him in a in a sentence or two and then recharacterizes him later and and none of these characterizations are the same but they're not at odds with each other and they all add up over time to this complex picture of, of what's at stake what's at stake for this character what's at stake for the narrator telling the story about this character and what's at stake for the novelist writing the novel taking on the great gatsby as a as a reinterpretation i find that really interesting um I don't know, maybe we should just go in and talk about that now that I've brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like I'm in, in charge of a conversation. So the first characterization of him is on pages 21 and... It's, on, it's actually the very beginning of chapter 3, pages 19 and 20. So Gatsby was a fabulously wealthy man with a harmless affectation, or perhaps he actually was the one in a million who had sold his soul. And... Uh, no one knew, and that summer absolutely no one cared when it seemed as if the legendary Canadian pipeline poured good whiskey straight from the solid gold taps of his French facsimile mansion. So he's he's immediately ambiguous. He's definitely something. And this is one of the ways in which she uses that fabulous mode to her advantage is that it allows a kind of theme of wealth and corruption to sit on the surface in plain sight and be taken at, at a face value that doesn't involve machinations of plot and inventing elaborate things, but rather becomes, a again, part of the fabric of telling the novel. Yeah. yeah. And also this, this, this passage, this is another thing that she does. You'll remember, it was, the only, it was only the year before when Society Madcaps went about with a single nail painted slick back, slick black the mark of someone with infernal dealings. <laughs> it was so fashionable 
that Maybelline released Chat Noir, its deluxe black nail polish that promised a devilish, long-lasting gleam. So, I mean, this was the, the moment in, in American history when the cosmetics industry began developing in, into what it is now, right? Before this, only actresses and prostitutes painted their faces, right? But with, with Maybelline and all this, it becomes a thing. But so I ask a, a, a friend who's really interested in the occult if, if this is really a thing. Like if you have one fingernail painted black, maybe it's the ring finger. That's a sign that, that, that somehow, you know, you've made a, a deal with. It says, no, that sounds like something the author made up. I like yeah, that. Yeah, I love that because it works great in the novel because there's lots of times where like there's a, t a moment where Gatsby, it, they're at, it's somewhere in about three quarters of the way through the novel maybe where they, they go to Nick's house. It's this a scene where Gatsby has, has told Nick to invite Daisy and him so he can be in the same room with, with Daisy. And, and it's a really, the retelling of that scene in this novel is great. I really like it. And I do and, too. And Gatsby gets flustered and knocks a clock off of the mantelpiece and then catches it really like suavely and almost impossibly. <laughs> and, and, and then he gets flustered and leaves the room. And when he comes back in, she specifically notes that he's curled his hand to hide his black finger. And there's yeah. a few other little things like that that get mentioned all the way through that just, again, one, one of the things that I really admire about the way she's, invented these things and used them is that I think insecure writers or or perhaps less confident writers would overuse something like that because it's an exciting idea that you know does the thing you mm -hmm. want and and she really uses these kinds of things to perfection she doesn't overdo play her hand on these things she she makes them important and valuable to what she's doing, but without, without getting lost in the world building kind of stuff of yes. her own invention. Yes. Yeah, so as the novel develops, the, the complexity of, of this fabulous dimension of the novel develops too, but it never becomes the driving machinery. It's just a way to comment metaphorically mm -hmm anagogically, I mean, you know, some kind of spiritual dimension that, that's that's added to it. So there's speculation toward the end of the novel that Gatsby sort of raised his magnificent mansion up from the mud using, you know, infernal magic, and that that somehow his his house becomes a kind of conduit to hell kind yeah. of thing. But that makes perfect metaphorical sense, right? It It doesn't explain anything. And certainly his deal with the devil doesn't save him. No, and it also so also it, it comments at another point in the novel on the fact that he never hides the human labor that went into the building of this mansion, yeah. and so she plays it. She, you know, she has her cake and eats it, which is you know annoying because she pulls it off. <laughs> it's a, um, I say that with full respect. I, I think it's really interesting that she does it because she she's always playing with that. What she's interested in, I think, or what the novel to me was interested in, is that line between those things and that the kind of liminal space of of the the realist world in which we operate and and this this fabled world or fabulous world that yeah. sits up against it or on top of it and where they come together and how they come together and what's the meaning of where those moments come together 
in very straightforward ways, but ways that are complex because of how straightforward they are. So like the speakeasies in in Manhattan that she's going to are all these kind of demonic secret spaces that you access in a a slightly ill-defined magical way with a password, with a just knowing where they are. The temporal space is always slightly chaotic in ways that I, I, not in the telling like it all makes sense in the telling, but there, there's never it's never quite matching up but then this all maps on to the the world of high society louisville that she's come from to the world of criminality and politics and power that that i mean she's that that we operate in i was going to say that we live in where you know the, we're, we're recording this a couple of days after there's been this massive release of financial dealings of rulers and rich people of the world right like this is part of what she's commenting on is like all this stuff that's hidden um, and has a veneer that hides it is is has a power over people and back to something you said a couple of minutes ago and and you you sort of as you were talking, you you sort of develop your idea. There isn't a line between these two worlds. Yeah. It is sort of luminous, it, right? It's there's so much like bleeding across what might have been a boundary at at some point, but not in this mm-hmm. novel. And I love the fact that she never stops to explain. Yeah, it's just normal from the get go, right? The the opening pages of this novel were like super thrilling to me because it's let's talk. About it's that. so it starts with in Daisy's house in East egg. And it, and it's basically just a hot day with, with Daisy and Jordan lying around. Here, let me, let me do this. This is the opening paragraph of the novel. Very short. The wind came into the house from the sound and it blew Daisy and me around her East egg mansion, like puffs of dandelion seeds, like foam, like a pair of young women in white dresses who had no cares to weigh them down. And so when I'm reading this and I didn't yet know that there was going to be this fabulous dimension in the novel, I thought, oh, what an interesting metaphor. It's like the unbearable lightness of being or something. Oh, no, no, no. It's a real wind. And they're really blowing yeah. around the house because they're witches. And, and she de- and she develops it over the like this that's followed by another short paragraph and then a longer paragraph and then an even longer paragraph that all develop that conceit and and never quite tell you that that's really that they're it never says they're literally flying around and like they crack open a vial that's described just just sideways enough that it could it could just be like a hunk of hash or it could be some sort of magic thing. And then they're flying and they're up to the ceiling and, you, and you're like, oh, this is a nice way of describing them getting high. And like, oh no, they're really like about the ceiling. It's, like, <laughs> it's great. It's really good. And and and, and it embodies exactly what you're saying that the, the, these worlds are part of the, a part of each other. They're not extricable, but there's still kind of borders between them. What do you think of demoniac? What do I think of it? Never tried it myself. Yeah, I don't touch the stuff. <laughs> yeah, I don't touch that. So we should explain what it is, because this 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 figures throughout the novel, yeah, this, and it's consumed more regularly than alcohol. Yeah, and it's kind of it, it it it's not again. It's not. She doesn't really say, and this is what it is, and this is what it does. It's a kind of elixir for a sort of supernatural elixir, I guess would be my way of. Well, we're, we're told describing that it's, it. it's distilled from demons' yeah. blood, hence the name, and it seems to have all kinds of magical properties. Yeah. And it's crucial to to the end of the novel, isn't it? After after uh, Myrtle's uh, murder, mm-hmm. and so 
this is one of my favorite moments in the in the entire novel when Jordan goes to the the billboard for T.J. Eckelberg. And, and by the way, it's this is worth noting too, right? Like one of the things that a writer gets when she enters an already invented fictional world, right, is she doesn't have to, to spend a lot of time with characterization because we all already know the characters, right? So Jordan goes to this, this billboard and does her paper cutting thing. We haven't talked about that yet either. To try to make the billboard speak because in Fitzgerald's novel, the billboard is a sort of Tiresias-like figure. It sees everything but can do nothing to alter the course of events and doesn't speak. I realized there were there were like three different leads. In yeah, that. I was like, "Where is he going with this?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's 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 come back to that moment in a in a second because it's worth pointing out that one of the abilities that Jordan has is to cut paper figures that that become realistic and alive. And so there's a scene early on where she Daisy doesn't want to attend a, a party, and she gets. Jordan to cut out a paper doll version of herself that she sends in her stead and then they have to brutally murder it to hide the evidence um, <laughs> which I apologize if I'm giving something away there but I'm not sure I really am because it's it's again it's not really the event it's the description of the event that really is the what matters in, in the novel but it's a valuable moment in the narration because it, it tells us something about what Daisy's capable yeah. of. And, and, and it's, it really haunts Jordan all the way. It's, it's been haunting her because she's telling this story. Uh, she's telling a story about the present tense. And then she's telling a story about how she got here. I, I, you know, her backstory kind of fills in it through various points. I guess what you might call a flashback. But I think that's slightly doing a disservice to what's actually going on in those chapters. And this is one of, this is, she, she's already been haunted by this thing that happened in her past in the novel so far, but now we're finding out the thing that's haunting her and it's, and it's brutal, but she has this ability the the traveling troupe that she meets at Gatsby's party that I already talked about um, also have this ability um, there's a and again there's a nice moment where she says is they there's there there's this paper dragon that they're bringing through the party dancing through the party and she says to the guy who's leading it is it real and he says of course it's real it's made of paper and it's it's such a great it's such a great moment where she, again you just see a writer in control of her conceit playing with it in a way that is is really nice and and meaningful and you know my, my predilection for reading things in, in meta terms. Of course, real it's paper. Is uh that's that's literature, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> oh, I'm I'm all in favor of that interpretation of it, as probably anyone who has had the misfortune of being in one of my classes would attest where I'm like, This is a real thing, it's a book, it exists in the world. But let's so anyways, she has this ability, so let's come back to the to the billboard. That was your cue. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. That's all right. Yes, that was one of the leads. So I was fascinated by that 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 moment because she's trying to she's trying to comprehend everything that's happened, and that's absolutely in the spirit of the original novel, right? Like that's what I, I, I liked about 
Baz Luhrmann's recent film of, of Gatsby, they, they, they sort of introduce this frame narrative where Nick is in a sanatorium years later and the therapist suggests he try writing all this down. Well, what we get in Niveau's novel is Jordan Baker going up to the billboard for T.J. Eckelberg and using her, her paper-cutting magic. Again, it's never spoiled by, by any attempt to explain it, right? And she doesn't do it as well as the troupe of Vietnamese that she meets at Gatsby's party because she's been cut off from her own heritage. So she somehow retains the vestiges of this power. Like she can, well, the fact that she can make a paper cut out of Daisy and that, that can be perfectly serviceable in the party says that, that she's still got it. But she's not in complete control. So that paper cutout was missing fingers, mm-hmm. right? Only put gloves on it. But so she gets to the poster and she kind of fails because she's overwhelmed by the power of everything that she's attempting to process and to understand and to figure out what it means with regard to her own desires. You know, that she is at one and the same time sort of, you know, self-conscious of, but afraid of, and and resisting, right? Yeah. So she goes to the billboard and and attempts to give it the power of speech how did you understand what happens there? Well, my understanding, I'm looking at it now, it's on page 237. She slices, the, she uses, she doesn't have scissors, she uses a, like a piece of broken glass, right? And she tries to cut open the mouth to animate it. And then it's there's a question here that is not resolved as far as I'm concerned in the novel as to whether she succeeds or doesn't succeed and whether she's almost just kind of hallucinating this or whether it really speaks to her, but it speaks to her in, in real, like, you know, you mentioned Tiresias already. It, it really speaks to her in kind of Greek tragedy, Greek mythos sort of riddles. You know, what should I talk about? I am only paper. Exactly a contradiction of, of course it's real. <laughs> oh, nice. Yes. You know, um, and my eyes are closed and I have no tongue. It, 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 it I won't read the whole thing, but it, she's, she's desperate for the, for this thing to tell her something that really she can only tell herself, right? She's looking in the wrong place. Yeah. Well, you know, Doug, I, I think Niveau's novel is really a lot about desire. And you, you had us thinking about, you know, the, the moment that's so crucial in Fitzgerald's novel, it's crucial in Niveau's as well, where in this case, Jordan more than Nick, but the two of them arrange together for Daisy and Gatsby to meet in Nick's cottage. Mm-hmm. And Niveau's novel, you know, we, we sort of leave Gatsby and Daisy in Nick's house alone together. And the novel more or less permits us just to remember what happens in Fitzgerald. But Niveau's novel then focuses on Nick and Jordan, who have an erotic encounter. You know, I don't know how much sexual detail we're going to go into here. In <laughs> it's your a family podcast. show. <laughs> but, but stuff happens, yeah. right? And I, I think what we see there is, is real desire versus what Jordan Baker repeatedly calls with with deep concern Gatsby's insatiable hunger and it's not attractive it's threatening 
it's an it's an insatiable but it's about something else that's not love at all yeah so i mapped the times that she mentions exactly that through the novel mm. so I'll, I'll run through them quickly i suppose oh yeah dude that's a great so idea so on page 34 she says says seeing him then you knew he would remake the world for the object of his desire but what a world it would be and it wasn't as if you could stop him. I knew Gatsby right then for what he was, a predator whose desires were so strong they would swing yours around and put them out of true. Mm -hmm. And then, out of true. yeah, which is, which is a nice use of that phrase. As a cyclist, I think about when my wheels are out of, you know, the wheels needed to be tr need to be trued once in a while to keep them rolling straight forward. Yeah, it's a carpentry term also. So what, sorry? A carpentry, carpentry term. term. You know, to have the angles yeah. meeting as they should. And then, so about 25 pages later in the novel, she says, my God, he thinks he's sincere, I thought with wonder. <laughs> and perhaps in that moment, I warmed to him just a little more. It was just a tiny crack in my defenses, but it was really all that was necessary. So there you see the idea coming to life being acted out on her you know she's being put out of true a little bit there by his power and the power is that not whether he is sincere or not which is why you laughed um, but that he thinks he's sincere but he thinks he's sincere and then there's th this is on page 99 so this is another 30 pages or so on in the novel i knew that there was something empty in him before but now i could see that it wasn't empty all the time now there was a monstrous want in there, a monstrous want, remorseless and relentless, and it made my stomach turn that it thought itself love. So again, it's not that it is love, it's that it thinks itself love. It thinks, he thinks he's sincere. Yeah, I don't want to interrupt the chain, but that's a crucial moment. Yeah. That's monstrous. And when the word monstrous appears in a fabulous fiction like this, it's not just an action. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you. It was a, a useful interruption, so I'll allow it. <laughs> uh, and then on the same page, a little further down, it's like what what's interesting about this from my point, well, from one of my points of view, I suppose, as a writer, is is how you, you nail something that straightforwardly but well, which I think she's done in exactly the way you've described it's, it's that she's she's building in from the fabric of her fabulous story. And she, so when she turns the word monstrous, and she's a very careful user of words, this novel is just word for word, just really carefully written, really nicely, beautifully written. It's really a terrific thing. Just you can just enjoy the prose and, and nothing more and still have a fun novel to read. Um, she, she is a writer. Oh, for sure. And so you get that that moment and it's unmistakable but but part of the lived experience of reading the novel and then less than half a page later she comes back to it again which is again in a in a, in a lesser writer's hands or in an unconfident writer's hands could go wrong but she pulls it off by giving you a different angle of the same idea when i looked at famous jay gatsby soul gone and some terrible engine he called love driving him now I could see that for him, the world was always ending. I mean, this is really something. <laughs> and it's always, yes. it's, these things are always slightly contingent explanations of what's going on, right? He thinks he's sincere. He calls it love. He's either this or that. 
And these comments always resonate beyond the limits of that initial, that, that, that particular situation. Yeah. And then this brings me finally, exactly, exactly that, that, that those, res- what's interesting is they resonate beyond the particular situation and they resonate across to one another. And then we really get the payoff in this scene that you've been talking about. So I finally come back to the point um, where, you know, Tom comes in and Gatsby just says, look, your wife doesn't love you. She loves me and I love her. And I'm not going to read out the whole thing. Um, and and it's it's embarrassing to everyone because it's so sincere, that sincerity that he thinks he's sincere. Here he is being sincere, whether it's true or not, whether it's whether it is sincere to everyone else are all questions. But to him in that moment, it's sincere. And she says, we all flinched from the theatrical sound of his voice. It was too much for people like us, too genuine and passionate. Some mm-hmm. love could survive being put on show like that, but almost every kind of love that I knew would wither through it, curl up from shame and exposure and die. Is It's amazing. <laughs> it's an incredible moment. <laughs> and we've already established that Jordan Baker had known many kinds of love. Yeah, yeah. But a, a lot of it on show in ways that, are, it's being put on show in order to to conceal the lack of sincerity, right? She she's she's always talking yes. about how she kind of knows that her love, what she she she's always foregrounding that what she and Nick have isn't really love and isn't really gonna last beyond the the fun of the summer and isn't really gonna you know. But then there's off there's an obvious kind of there is a kind of love that they have for each other in this novel sure but it's it's also not tied to the erotic love that they share with one another and it's kind of interesting that they're they're split apart a little bit they're they're kind of always talking in in two different modes with one another i guess is what i'm saying yeah no this has been really great you know you're you're putting together these these moments in sequence and you you sort of finish with this this question of of this is this is just like too sincere right and yet we've talked about other passages in the novel where like jordan thinks well maybe she could love nick because there's something so vulnerable about his sincerity right but so you you'll you'll remember when we were starting and and i was sharing with you what what brenda peinado has to say about fabulism right and she calls it the new sincerity, like a, a, a new way to be sincere. So what does sincerity mean? How is it a value in this very performative world? All of this is is, is richly done. And there's there's no like simple conclusion, right? So, so the novel sort of puts into tension these, these opposed ways of going through the world. I think it's really interesting. And, and to the sequence that you developed for us, Maybe I can add two other moments that come right after. Super. The first of them is on uh, 168. This is uh, as the, the, the party's ending. Gatsby's mansions spilled light from every window, from every door, and that night from every tree. Something at the heart of the trees on his property, like something in the heart of the trees themselves, right, gleamed. And I saw more than one beautiful girl up in the branches trying to grasp that sweet and lovely light with their hands that came up empty. And while most gave up, a black girl in a moire silk dress remained up in the bare branches, her dress like a cocoon, this part, Doug, and her face stained with tears for seeing her desire so close. 
and yet so untouchable. That's Gatsby looking at Daisy, right? Yeah. And then finally, like four pages later, Jordan remarks that Gatsby's party reeked of desperation. <laughs> oh, that, that's, <laughs> that's like the, the ultimate condemnation in, in the world of this novel or any other, frankly. There's nothing less attractive than desperation. One of the things I hate about the way that, that Americans talk about The Great Gatsby as a novel <clears throat> is they all want to make it about the American dream. And I hate the hollowness of that phrase. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah, it's a simplistic way of thinking about an incredibly complex and, and wonderful novel. I still think the best thing that Fitzgerald ever wrote by far. But this, this novel, I think, is more about desire itself. And I think that's where the, the fab, its fabulous elements really come to its, its, uh, its, its aid. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it really, it really gives Niveau a key to unlock that, that interest in desire and what desire means and how desire expresses itself and how desire enlivens the world, um, how, de how desire darkens the world, all these things in a really rich complex and if i can borrow your words sincere way and it it's a novel well worth reading i think yeah so you know gatsby's mansion is the sort of portal to hell because it's all about this this unquenchable desire yeah and so i think we've we've done a good job in a little under an hour of scratching the surface of this novel and i hope it's given people some things to think about as they if they already have read the novel or if they want to go and pick this novel up um it's it's pretty much brand new it, it was only published i don't know in the last sometime in the last uh june 20 i was going to read say 2021 june 2021 so um thank you so much michael for uh first of all for suggesting this novel to me um i have to give you credit for um bringing it to the attention of the novel romantics podcast and uh for coming to discuss two really interesting very different interpretations of F. Scott Fitzgerald's Great Gatsby with me. Thanks a lot. Well, thanks so much for having me. And maybe the last thing I'll say is I love it when a, a writer pulls me in despite my resistance. When I first noticed the fabulous elements in this book, it's like, oh, no, really, dude? But, but she, she got me, and she got me really early on. It was, it's, a very, it's a fun novel to read, but it's also it's an interesting novel to think about. Absolutely. Anyway, Doug, thanks again. This was really fun. Thank you. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.